what is really changing these days in national security architecture planning is the issue of human security and vulnerability of human mind because of the technological developments. So if we are going back, let's say 50, 100 years ago, what was the issue? The issue was to protect our borders, I mean physical borders. And if your uh, physical borders are protected, the population inside these borders are also secure. But these days, because of the increasing number of cyber attacks, because of technological developments and rising number of psychological operations, threats and challenges are coming directly to human minds. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos. In today's episode, as part of our wider theme of international relations, security studies and technology, we focus on national security architecture and cybersecurity in the Eurasian region. It is a pleasure to have this conversation today with Dr. Ruben Lamrian from the Russian Armenian University. Dr. Lamrianth, welcome and thank you so much for being here with us. Mr. Petrikos, thank you very much for your kind invitation. It's my great pleasure and honor to be on this podcast program, the Diplomatic Academy, the conversation. Thank you once again for your invitation. Now, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Ruben Lamrianth is the head of the Chair of World Politics and International Relations at the Russian Armenian University. He is also an associate professor at the Public Administration Academy of the Republic of Romania, and he received his PhD in political science specializing in international relations in 2014 from the National Strategic Research Institute under the Ministry of Defense of Romania. From September 2018 to August 2019, Dr. Elamirian undertook a visiting Fulbright Scholar position at Princeton University, working on a project entitled Eastern Partnership Countries on the Crossroads of the Eurasian Geopolitics, USA, EU, Russia, and China. His research and teaching cover international relations, geopolitics, as well as international and cybersecurity, with a focus on the South Caucasus, Eastern Europe, Russia, and the Eurasian regions. Now, I feel that this is going to be a very interesting conversation, given that myself, I'm very interested in this same research field. So, Dr. Lamariana, I'd like to invite you to give us an overview or an introduction, if you like, of the state that we find ourselves in today. So, what do we mean by national security architecture? And do states actually, what, what do the states do to maintain this national security architecture in the era of rapid advances in digital technologies. Mr. Petrikos, uh, thank you once again for your kind invitation. And let me jump into your question. Uh, basically speaking, as we all know, we live in a very tough times. And there are probably two reasons to uh, use this term, tough times. So. Most states these days, um, they witness traditional security challenges and threats. And plus to that, we witness non-traditional, or let me put it this way, new um, security challenges and threats to our national security architectures. But it's not only about 
national security architectures, but there is these days we witness challenges and changes, transformations also on regional and global levels. And all this together brings us to the necessity to reevaluate how we shape our national security architectures. And what I mean saying national security architecture, probably we should divide it into two parts, national level and also international level. So in terms of technology, in terms of new diseases and that kind of things, also ecological problems, the issue is how states handle these uh, challenges and states with uh, challenges and threats within their states and how we provide cooperation within the global security architecture and also within regions, uh, how to handle these issues. And all this together bring, uh, brings us to the necessity to reevaluate re both our national security strategies based on the new trends, for instance, technological developments, uh, ecological problems, but on the other hand, we see the re-emergence of global power competition, which also makes challenging for especially small states how to organize their uh, long-term strategies, long-term strategies, short-term strategies, and also middle-term strategies. Mm -hmm. I would like to uh, take a couple of points that you've mentioned. Uh, particularly when it comes to these new trends and priorities, um, what, I understand and I'm pretty sure our listeners also understand that every country, every case study is completely different from one place to another. But what would you say that are the new trends and priorities when it comes to actually developing and implementing a national security architecture in any given country? Uh, and uh, I'd like to focus on uh, cybersecurity as a basic framework to work with. So when we look at things from a cyber perspective, what sort of trends and priorities do we have in defending and uh, maintaining a national security architecture? Let me start from the beginning. I think we can conditionally divide the current threats and challenges to the country's national security architecture into three parts. So it's traditional threats which are remaining. For instance, conventional warfare and uh, that kind of things. The second one is non-traditional, so-called old, we can put it this, uh, like this, new, old new threats and challenges. And here we can put, for instance, hybrid warfare or diseases, epidemics, plagues. But also the third level or dimensions of the current challenges and threats, even trends, several issues I would like to point out. Okay, first of all, it is the development of international network terrorist organizations, international organized crime. We can put also here global issues such as ecological problems to our planet. Of course, if we are not talking about great flood, I mean, to put it new, new challenges. And third one, I want to refer exactly to your, specifically to your question and put the current level of technological development, which includes uh, also the development of AI and robotics. And let me come to the priority from this third point. The problem is what is really changing these days in national security architecture planning is the 
issue of human security and vulnerability of human mind because of the technological developments. So if we are going back, let's say 50, 100 years ago, what was the issue? The issue was to protect our borders, I mean, physical borders. And if your uh, physical borders are protected, the population inside these borders are also secure. But these days, because of the increasing number of cyber attacks, because of technological developments and rising number of psychological operations, threats and challenges are coming directly to human minds, directly to human minds and directly to human devices. And from this perspective, we have this necessity to reshape national security architectures and not only national security architectures, but also regional and global ones to understand how we can secure our populations. This is one thing. And another thing I would like to mention with regard to changing security architecture globally and new trends and uh, perspectives is probably return of great power politics. This is very important, especially whenever we are talking about small countries like Armenia or Cyprus. And the issue is, for instance, in terms of Armenia, for let's say last 30 years, uh, the so-called multi-vector foreign policy was the main uh, foreign policy strategy for Armenia. And the idea is you are developing your cooperation with all the centers of power. Of course, uh, you are understanding how much you can cooperate with different centers of power, but anyway, the idea is there. But with the rising great power competition these days, the problem is the, that at some point, uh, large uh, players, major powers, for instance, in my region, can ask the small countries of the region to make the choice. And for instance, for countries like Armenia, it would be a very tough choice. Yeah, it's um, quite interesting to see these uh, new rivalry that you've mentioned because uh, we see this uh, revival, as you've said, of uh, competition when it comes to global powers as such. But we also have started both within academic circles, but also within policymaking circles to talk about the role that small states have to play in this whole uh, nexus. And uh, what, l let's focus for a minute a bit more on the Eurasian region, which is one of your areas of uh, specialization. Uh, with, with some examples in mind, you've, you've already mentioned uh, very briefly Armenia and Cyprus, who are also, uh, uh, they fall under the category, categorization of small states. What other geopolitical challenges do we see in the Eurasian region when it comes to all new online technologies? And what sort of As rivalry is there told about The issue of human security, the vulnerability of human mind because of cyber and information campaigns. I would also add here the issue of post-truth world. It's very dangerous, especially if we are talking about small countries and not only, of course, Another thing I would add is the rise of surveillance. Um, it is the problem and it is the problem for small countries and it is the problem for our population. And another thing I would like to outline again with regard also to 
the reemergence of great power politics. It is the idea of G5, for instance, and technological great power competition. And the issue is that these days we see, we see that the world is slowly again dividing into, let me put it this way, spheres of influence uh, because of technological innovations. So we see this problem between the US and China. And we see that slowly this issue of technological division is also coming to the EU. And the problem here can be that at some point, great powers will also put this necessity of choice between small countries. And for instance, if we are talking about Armenia, it, it is a very tough choice because neither strategically nor tactically we are ready for that. I mean, we have uh, strong economic, political ties with all centers of power. Uh, this cooperation is also values-based. We also have uh, diasporas all in all of these uh, in all of these centers of power, and it would be a very um, tough choice. And one more thing I would like to add to this question is the uh, is the necessity of the development of these technologies. So, okay, great powers are developing technologies, but what is the place of small states? Or what is the place of uh, medium-sized countries in these technological trends? So it is expensive, this is the issue. And for instance, how uh, Armenia or Cyprus can handle this necessity of research and development and investment into these processes. The issue is we should avoid becoming in the future uh, kind of raw materials supplier. But on the other hand, it's very, very expensive to, to integrate into global share of technological division. The other thing that uh, we observe nowadays is uh, the, when we look at small states, they, we, there are other questions that begin to pop up. Like, do they actually, are, are they actually capable of, uh, in terms of capacity and adaptability, uh, when they lack these raw materials, these resources, are they still able to compete with bigger states when it, ca when it comes to the cybersecurity domain? Do they have to strike some new alliances? Do they have to, you know, use a different means of alternative? Because we, we are looking at small states, small populations. So by default, when it comes to the physical needs the physical materials they when it, when, when it comes to conventional security concerns they are uh, they are at a disadvantage when we look at conventional warfare so they cannot really raise larger armies but are they capable of competing in terms of technology the short answer is yes small states are capable but then let me elaborate on this i think first of all if small states are able or capable to do this or not Basically speaking, depends on their ruling elites, societies, and individuals in general. So how we organize all these things. And I suggest to divide our measurement into two parts, a domestic level and international. So when it comes to domestic level, so the question is, if the ruling elites are able to provide national consolidation, are they able to invest in technology and cyber infrastructure and you know the issue is that for instance in my region all the countries in the region 
let me put it in this way, they dream to become kind of hub, real life hub for, let's say, to, to communicate Belt and Road Initiative with Europe and also to communicate different infrastructure projects on the ground. But you know, the problem is probably we should ask a question to ourselves. Probably we need to invest not in real infrastructure development, but probably we need to invest in, in the development of cyber infrastructure into the development of technological infrastructure. And probably, if even, especially when we are talking about small states, probably our dream should be to become um, technological hubs, not transportation hubs, uh, but technological hubs. And this, basically speaking, might bring for the, to the small states much more dividends than to, let's say, uh, connect on the ground, Europe with Belt and Road Initiative. This is uh, one thing I would like to stress out uh, when we speak about domestic level. At the same time, it's very important also to develop, especially for the small countries, to develop the international level of cooperation. And I will divide this idea into two parts. Probably we should de uh, develop two streams, collective security stream, and collective defense stream. Whenever it comes to collective security stream, probably small countries should integrate and unite their efforts to bring more accountability inside the UN, inside the OSCE, to, to become more protected from global and regional threats. At the same time, what is not less important, probably we should think about building our own alliances. Uh, and why not cybersecurity alliances? Of course, this is this process is developing, and there is tough cybersecurity buildup within NATO, within the CSTO. But we should end also cooperation of NATO with its partners, for instance, in the framework of individual partnership action plan. For instance, in this regard, NATO is cooperating with Armenia and other countries in the region for cybersecurity development. But at the same time, probably we should go out of this box and think how small countries worldwide can cooperate, especially if they have similar interests, how they can cooperate to compete with bigger states. And for instance, recently, the president of Armenia, Armen Sarkisyan, came up with the idea to establish a kind of international organization for cooperation of small states. I think it's a great idea. And if we are talking about cybersecurity, cyber defense, and cooperation of small states with regard to bigger partners, it might be a great platform to cooperate on this. It does sound quite a, a very ambitious, but also quite an exciting project. The issue that I personally have come across is that, like you've said at the very beginning, sometimes there are a couple of impediments when it comes to these uh, collective uh, solidarity in terms of security and defense that are naturally and uh, also very often unfairly imposed upon small states because of uh, the more, because when we look at international society as a whole, it can be a bit of an elitist club. We, can, we see that bigger states, they still dominate very often the field uh, in different ways. So, do you feel that if small states unite 
in their pursuit of uh, both physical but mainly cyber security. Uh, do you think that they would should be able to overcome a couple of these impediments? And if not, the, do we see any other way of, uh, I don't know, uh, bypassing more impediments in any other way apart from this, you know, partnerships in international institutions and organizations? Do you think this is uh, perhaps the best and most effective method? This is a great question, Petra. Thank you for that. Actually, this is my concern if we are talking about re-emergence of great power competition global great power competition uh for smallest and if we are talking about the division of world kind of new division of the world into spheres of influence it will become more and more tough for small states to kind of unite their efforts to provide their cyber security but on the other hand i think the issue is there are two things first of all i think the great powers would be wise enough not to share the world or divide the world into new spheres of influence this is one thing because i'm a supporter of more open world and open opportunities for all partners to collaborate together this is one thing another thing i think that the collaboration of small states not necessarily should be against let's say great powers or major regional powers which can let's say exclude this kind of collaboration but very often we have also some regional enemies or regional counterparts which are threats or challenges for small countries in the region but if we collaborate, for instance, to protect ourselves against these kind of countries, these kind of states, it would be not a problem for, for major powers. At the same time, for instance, on the platforms of the UN, of the OSCE, I think if the small states are determined enough and united enough to promote their interests, I think they together will be able to also reach their goals. Mm -hmm. We've seen uh, the impact and the effect that cooperation has indeed. Uh, in more recent contemporary events, we saw the sort of impact this has had on the European Union, for example, where there were at first, at first some delays in actually coming up with a coherent policy in dealing with the pandemic. And uh, that was due to the complex structure mechanisms that are set by default in the European Union, which led to a number of states uh, keeping prioritizing national security interests and national sovereignty interests, if I may, over uh, open borders uh, within the EU. So they all started closing borders. We also saw um, uh, this sort of reluctance to take action as a as a whole so going to the pandemic much more specifically we've uh, we've apart we've we've re we come to realize that in times of crisis uh, states and also small states of course they if they group together because that's what happened in the eu later on right they came up with a, a more coherent economic policy and they and it, the whole thing started mm -hmm. working now we will see the the effect of that in several months from now 
But when we look at the pandemic more closely, we have seen an increased number of cyber attacks. And these attacks have targeted businesses and private individuals alike, but also states and institutions. So this uh, pandemic, although it has been a crisis on its own, we, we, we've seen numerous other mini crises resulting from the cyber attacks on institutions. What does this tell us about the priorities of the state in formulating its foreign defense and security policies during a pandemic? Yes, exactly. You are right. And the issue is that with COVID-19, we saw increasing number of cyber attacks against businesses, international institutions, states, media outlets, etc. But fairly spe speaking, it's not a new trend. Probably COVID-19 kind of falsified these processes, but we are, if we are going back to, let's say, 20 years and try to trace back from early 2000s to these days, we see this increasing number year on year. And of course, with COVID-19, when major part of the global population went online, we see the vulnerability of our systems. Moreover, with, the, uh, with this COVID-19 and transformation in technological realm, we can speak about transformation from digital 2.0 to digital 3.0. And this brings us to the understanding and to the necessity of transformation of our systems. But at the same time, if we are talking about state policies, we, and again, if we are tracing back, let's say, for 20 years, again, we, we see this transformation on the ground within inside Russia, I mean, state policy against cybersecurity, the US, European Union had toughened up its uh, cybersecurity policies after 2015 US elections. So it, this process is, is an ongoing thing. And we also see these transformations inside NATO, inside the Russia CSTO. But in my opinion, what is more important here, it's not that much about COVID-19 and its results, let me put it this way, but probably we should talk here about more evolutionary things. And I think the more evolutionary thing is the industrial force industry is the force industrial revolution. When we see penetration of, I mean, development and then penetration of AI, robotics, and cybersecurity issues into all spheres of human activities. And I would like to remind here the, the words of a British strategist, Little Hart, who in early 20s, uh, was talking about the future wars for that time. And his idea was that the future war is the war of vehicles. And based on this, I would like to ask a question to ourselves. What is the future phase of the upcoming warfares? And in my opinion, the future warfare is, if we try to paraphrase little part, it would be about AI, robotics, and cybersecurity. And from this perspective, again, we see these transformations with regard to cybersecurity, but we do not see, especially if we are uh, talking about small states, uh, we don't see the understanding, this kind of understanding of the future warfare. And this should be the transformation 
along with human security and these kind of things we talked about. This should be the new face uh, and the new reality which should transform the national security architectures and why not also regional security architectures and global ones. One way, I guess, of achieving this is uh, it has to be done, obviously, at the state level, but also at a regional level. But then again, we look at societies themselves. We have to begin raising awareness over the role of uh, new technologies, AI, robotics, and how they impact societies as well. And uh, if I may use, if I may refer to this uh, concept of uh, information warfare that we see nowadays as well, which is tied to the rise of these new digital uh, and online technologies, we've seen the rise of fake news, we've seen the rise of deep fake, especially when it comes to the use of uh, artificial intelligence. And it, it, all these things, they appear far more often nowadays. Now, when, uh, when we look at concepts like uh, our own security, cybersecurity, we've seen people also having, struggling, if I may, uh, in, in terms of the, the grasp, their understanding of technology. We've seen people coming up with weird conspiracy theories about the use of 5G technologies um, and also the lack of fact-checking on social media when it comes to information spreading. So these are actually quite uh, smart, if I may say, <laughs> smart tools when we look at their use in modern warfare and conflict because entire states and governments can actually be shaken when they are faced with fake news and misinformation, disinformation tactics. Now, what, what do you think about this? Yes, actually, I think we should divide your question into two parts. And first of all, let's try to understand what the information warfare is. I would suggest that it's kind of post-Soviet reality term, because whenever, for instance, we are uh, comparing post-Soviet uh, models of information slash cybersecurity approaches, so we think that, for instance, the strategy in Russia is called information warfare strategy, the same we used to have in Armenia from 2009 to uh, 2018. And at the, so basically, it comprises the Western understanding of cybersecurity plus psychological operations. So it, this is about terms. And another question, uh, again, I, I would like to ask to ourselves. I mean, is it new for our reality, what we witness these days? I mean, tools-wise, of course, it is new. But, uh, uh, but at the same time, what we really have on the ground, how these processes are being tackled, is it different what we had 100, 200, 500 years ago? Yes, we witness rapid increase of hybrid warfare, which includes also psychological and cyber operations, guerrilla warfare, development of post-truth reality. But is it new? I mean, cyber warfare is clearly new. But what about other components? Probably they are developing more intensively. But for instance, we also see clear evidence of conventional warfare worldwide. For instance, the April War of 2016, when Azerbaijan attacked Nagorno-Karabakh uh, Republic. We also see conventional or developments of conventional warfare during the Syrian conflict, etc. So from this perspective, we have kind of combination of 
old tools plus of course cyber dimension and also ai robotics we clearly saw this during and we continue to see this uh in syrian operation uh and again if we are returning to national security architectures we are returning to regional cooperation global cooperation um and basically speaking the problem is that we have institutions collective security institutions such as UN, OIC. But the problem is whenever you are talking with people who are responsible for, for instance, cybersecurity issues, or let's say post-truth problems within these organizations, they say that within member states, there is very little understanding of the necessity to combine the efforts. And again, we are returning to the issue of small countries, small states because we are the most vulnerable elements in this. That is why probably small states uh, should be more proactive. Also uh, within uh, UN, within the OSCE, to try to bring up and develop some kind of mechanisms, how to cooperate, how to provide better fact-checking, how to bring uh, more accountability, for instance, in cybersecurity or uh, generally speaking in cyber real but would you not say that there is already an ongoing effort in improving state state understanding within the international community and the international organizations uh, by utilizing um, these new technologies that we have because the uh, what we see nowadays for example uh, and as you've correctly mentioned this is a combination of old and new tools that we see information in general, it's just uh, when we look at the 21st century after the fourth industrial revolution, it is weaponized in different ways because in the past as well, we, we've seen the, the distortion of information or uh, being done in a much more traditional way. But now we just have the cyber domain to utilize uh, or basically play with information in new innovative ways. But what what we're what we're seeing in some social media providers like uh, Facebook or Twitter, we see that um, there is the uh, attempt to fact check nowadays. So there are a lot of posts that target specific states or private individuals or specific events that have taken place. If they're misguided and if they're trying to misguide their audience, they're getting flagged. Uh, after a team of experts has confirmed and verified that these posts are not are actually uh, fake news or false information, as they call it. So that's one way, I guess, of uh, doing this within uh, the social media usage community. Now, the other thing is, however, when we talk about these international groups and organizations that uh, essentially foster this conversation at a national level, at an international level, there is uh, very often uh, some reluctance depending on, because all these things, they do require resources at the end of the day. They investing in new uh, technology and defending not just the state, but also their own, the, the society, uh, it requires money and time and also innovation in uh, more uh, experts uh, and invest, investing in new experts, in more experts within uh, each country at a local level. So. Do you think that small states, if they pull the resources together, they can effectively improve the general state understanding uh, of what these threats are? 
look, if we are talking about change, understanding, perception of the cyber threats, yes, it is on the place. So more and more states understand this, they are developing their cyber capabilities. We see that cybersecurity doctrines are getting more and more advanced. At the same time, more and more countries are developing cyber troops. They are developing cybersecurity coordination centers. And on the other hand, there is also rising understanding within civil society, within media outlets. And you are, of course, right that, for instance, uh, Washington Post is developing this uh, fact-checking tool and how to tackle with this information and these kind of things. But at the same time, I don't think there is increasing, at least rapid increase of understanding within international community and within international organizations which are responsible for collective security. I don't think there is much understanding, not on the organizational level, but on the state level. There is not much understanding of the necessity of cooperation. There is not much understanding of the necessity of accountability of different players. I mean, how, for instance, to tackle hate speech, how to collaborate together to reveal, for instance, disinformation campaigns, hate speech campaigns, and these kind of things. And of course, you're, you are right, it's very expensive. And the question is, uh, what is the responsibility of the international community and various states to bring together not only financial, but also human means, uh, human resources to fight against let's say, international anarchy in cyberspace. Because what we have today is an international anarchy in cyberspace. And from this part, let me jump into your uh, second part of your question about small states. The issue is, I think, small states, I'm not sure there is much understanding on this. And of course, it depends on, on different small states. In some, there is understanding, for instance, if we are talking about Estonia, for instance. Uh, with regard to others, there is less understanding. But at the same time, uh, for instance, if we are going with this organization, which uh, President of Armenia suggested to establish, probably one of the main directions might be the idea of bringing more accountability. And I think interest-wise, especially provided those countries which are interested not in spreading hate speech, not uh, in providing these uh, information campaigns, but providing political stability within their societies, political stability and cooperation agenda in international environment, at least these countries can unite their efforts. And if there is effective division of labor, for instance, one small country can put financial means, the other country can bring uh, its experience, the other country can bring human resources. And altogether, I think, yes, it might be a very effective platform how to, to, to unite, especially small states, as a proactive locomotive to bring, to transform international energy in cyberspace to something very accountable and friendly environment. Mm -hmm. So we are looking at essentially a platform 
of cooperation through a division of labor, let's say, sort of mechanism where uh, states ha will have the opportunity to, to pull in the resources together, but also at the same time pick up a very specialized task in, uh, in order to solve these problems. Like one of the bigger players, uh, and this is uh, a contradiction in terms, a bigger player that is also a small state would probably be Estonia, which is one of the most advanced technological small states given the, uh, its uh, recent history in terms of cyber attacks faced from uh, outside. And uh, it's quite interesting to see how the development, the innovation of new centers, new, is often the product that of, uh, of a crisis. Like, for example, in the case of Estonia, it developed, it was already t quite technologically advanced, but it started developing its cybersecurity centers following uh, an, an outburst of different cyber attacks. Now, with the pandemic, we've seen uh, the rapid digitalization of other countries and other small states in terms of their using their services, in terms of formulating their national security architecture and policies. We've seen all these collectively uh, as a response, which is probably one of the positive outcomes that we've seen throughout this pandemic, that states have begun to take in new, to invest new uh, resources into maintaining a, a, a digital presence. And that's definitely something that we uh, should be begin to look at, at ourselves as to how this ongoing process will evolve further in the near future. Most of the technological developments, and not only technological developments, were kind of result of crisis. So, of course, you're uh, completely right that uh, the situation with COVID-19 and the increasing number of <clears throat> cyber attacks, cyber operations, also uh, psychological operations, and as I told, uh, shift, potential shift from digital to zero to Digital 3.0 uh, will make not only small countries, but all countries in the, in the world to reevaluate their not only cybersecurity strategies, but also generally speaking, national security strategies and their architectures. And I think it's a very, it's a very good chance to, to become kind of trigger for small states to, to collaborate uh, to provide closer collaboration and to see the problems which come out with, uh, for instance, cybersecurity issues with cyber uh, cyber threats, and to collaborate tighter. This, this this might be a very interesting start and very good start because of the crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Lamarian, I'd like to thank you so much for all your time and your uh, very insightful input. Uh, I'd like to also ask you at this point if you have any other closing remarks for our listeners, because uh, I understand that in general we've uh, addressed quite a, an interesting but also complex topic itself in terms of uh, examining all these big questions within in terms of cybersecurity and national security architecture and uh, small states as well, which is a very uh, important topic nowadays. Do you have anything else to add to all this? Uh, yes, Mr. Petrikos, I would like to thank you once again for your kind invitation. And I also would like to thank our listeners to their time. 
the final remarks I would like to push out of uh, our conversation and once again remind probably the international community uh, and uh, the national governments which are uh, shaping uh, national security architectures to pay more attention into this transformation, revolutionary transformation, which is going on these days, and to pay more attention to the appearance of AI, robotics, and cybersecurity, because most probably it would be the face and character and essence of the future of warfare. Thank you so much, Dr. Lemurian. I wish you all the best with the, the continuation of your work. And I look forward to hearing back from you when it comes to uh, national security and uh, uh, Eurasia, the, the Caucasus, and uh, the role of small states and the, the, the new realities in the domain of cyber today. Thank you very much, Mr. Petrikos. It was my great pleasure to be hosted by you. Thank you.